Hey guys. Hey everybody. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Chase. And this is Crime with a K. Back at it again. We're back. So we'll keep this one short and sweet because we kind of chatted a lot in the beginning last week. Yes, we did. <laughs> but I'll first start off by saying thanks to everybody who reached out who also said they had a sushi moment. <laughs> We've all had a sushi moment. We've all had a sushi moment. And yeah, I just, you guys rock. She just, yeah, she had a little, she just needed a little cry. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like sharing their stories too of like their sushi moment. And I was dying laughing. So I'm like, we all have that one little thing that just tips you over the edge. I know, but we got, <laughs> we got it fixed and she got new sushi and it was delish. Yeah. We actually got it twice the last two days. So yikes. We have yeah three days, two days, three days. It is so good. But everybody found our place. Nobody went there before. It was always like us, our waitress and one other person. And now it's, it's like slammed 45 minute wait within yeah. like a month of it opening. I know. It's a good place. We yeah. love it. Crazy. Shots out. So jumping into Coffee of the Day, we went to Ralph's. Ralph's opened up here in Charlotte, the like famous one that's in New York. Yep. Chase. Oh, yeah. Chase had a little experience. I forgot what I wanted, like a cappuccino? No. Oh. You wanted the macchiato, but you want the American macchiato of yeah, like normal the, size. Yeah. I just got like a, th- a sip and a half. It's like a shot glass. Yeah. Not even. <laughs> Smaller than a shot glass. She pulled it out the window and I was like, oh my God. And I was like, I bet that's Chase's. Yep. I, I finished it by the time I got to the car. <laughs> so that was fun. And then I got an almond milk latte. I know you've wanted one today too. Huh? You I wanted know. one really bad today too. I did. I wanted a hot one. It was like really cold and rainy here. And oh my God. It's snowy. rained all day, like 3 a.m. till still now. Yeah. Chase Just, is going to have a busy week at work. Yes, I am. Cannot wait. Ugh, right before Christmas. Right before Christmas. Lovely. But also got feedback that you want a potential episode about Stephen Avery. Don't share your don't share your thoughts yet. Oh, okay. Chase watched the Chase watched the documentary. I did. I finally watched it. But they want my mom to come on with you. Oh. So you guys can kind of go back and forth. Chit chat. Yeah. Well, you gotta get your mom to do it. I know. Hint hint. Yeah, if she's listening yeah. out there. But yeah, no, I got some ideas. I got some opinions about it, but we'll leave that to next episode yes. or some future episode. A future episode. So jumping into today's case. So hello to all of our Idaho listeners. I really do have a big Idaho audience. Well, hello, Idaho. So we love you, but the other states are like, can we get some love? So a couple of people from Indiana reached out and they asked us to cover one in Indiana. And so today we're going to be covering the Claypool Hotel murders. Ooh, a hotel. Which this actually might be the oldest episode I've done. I don't know, though. Oh, so it's all back in the day. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about America in 1943. Oh, wow. It is old. Because woof. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. This time period was the thick of World War II. On January 1st, 1943, Project Y, a.k.a. the Manhattan Project, began operation to create the world's first atomic bomb under the direction of J. Robert Oppenheimer. On January 15th, the world's largest office building, also known as the Pentagon, was opened and dedicated in Arlington, Virginia. On February 7th, it's then announced that the shoe rationing will begin in the United States in an effort to send more supplies over to U.S. troops. On March 2nd, Battle of the Bismarck Sea for World War II. It's when the United States and Australian forces sank Japanese convoy ships. Okay. Uh, I didn't know the Pentagon was like the biggest building. Yeah. 
that's pretty crazy back then i don't know if it still is but well no i don't think anymore but like back then that's i know i put crazy there was a lot in 1943 and chase and i are history buffs and i thought that these were really interesting so i I threw some in there we are history buffs we are we love our history we went and saw napoleon yes we did and we're still haven't seen oppenheimer though no but (laughs) i know we need to get crackalacking on that one we do on july 24th operation gamera begins and it's when british and canadian airplanes bombed hamburg germany by night and then the americans came in and bombed it all day long yeah fun day for those people by the end of the operation in november nine thousand tons of explosives would have killed more than thirty thousand people and destroyed two hundred eighty thousand buildings she's almighty on september 7th a fire at the gulf hotel in houston texas killed 55 people and then on September 8th, the United States General, Dwight D. Eisenhower, publicly announced the surrender of Italy to the Allied forces. On December 2nd, 15 atomic scientists, including Soviet spy Klaus... F- I don't know if his last name's Fuchs, but we're going to say Fuchs. 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 Yeah. Fuchs. Klaus Fuchs arrived from Britain to join the U.S. Atomic Research Project. Mm. So Fuchs. So, so busy year. He gives a Fook. He gives a Fook. But as the world was plagued with war, there was something else that was pretty sinister happening in the United States. Our story today takes place in downtown Indianapolis in August of 1943 at the Claypool Hotel. Then in April of 1900, Edward F. Claypool, Henry W. Lawrence, and a couple other local businessmen planned a tour of a number of top U.S. hotels. Chicago Hotels and the New Oliver Hotel of South Bend, Indiana were the first on the list to check out. And the Oliver opened in 1899 and was considered one of the finest in the United States. And when you compare images both exterior and interior of the Oliver and the Claypool hotels, there are quite a few similarities. So basically, the early 1900s was a big hotel boom in the United States. Travel. Travel. People were going near and far. Um, People were beginning to migrate into cities to work Mm. and stay and pass through. Oh, especially with the war. Yeah, especially with the war. So... The early 1900s, these, I'm going to break down because it's a lot of, there was a lot of history. Basically, all of these big businessmen got together and they would design hotels around the country. And then they would go to other hotels, look at those hotels, take inspiration from those hotels, bring them back. That's really how the Claypool. kind of like our housing market now. Yeah. That's really how the Claypool came to be. <clears throat> the Claypool Hotel had a target opening date of December in 1902. The date of the grand opening kept getting pushed back, though, and the hotel would not be finished by the end of 1902. Then they said it would be no later than March 1st, then April 15th, then May 1st. And then in mid-March, workers were still laying carpet, cleaning up, hanging drapes, and completing the grand stairway when you walked in. These hotels also had elevator cages, which were the first of their kind, and that was kind of the whole time. Hmm. Well, it's, yeah, fancy. Yeah. The Claypool Hotel was really the first of its kind in Indianapolis and even across the country. The building had a waterworks plant, an electric light plant, a telephone system, a fire protection system, a pumping station, an ice making plant, mechanical refrigeration systems, steaming laundry, or like a steam laundry. Laundry system, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, laundry. A a Turkish bath, a swimming pool, and it even had a barber shop. Every man would be looking dapper at the Claypool Hotel. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, back then, especially, you have your own plants. Mm-hmm. And the fact too, that they were like, we have laundry. And that was a big thing. And oh, a telephone. Huge thing. Like, that's telephone, just crazy. Yeah. 
The water of the hotel was pumped from two 500-foot wells that were drilled underneath the hotel, where it was then filtered and purified by an air compressor. Damn. All of this, in addition to the spectacular, that's the word that was used a lot in this, spaces, it had meeting rooms, dining rooms, a roof garden, and a lot of other different spaces that other hotels didn't have at the time. The decoration of the interior were beautiful spaces and the carpets and the rugs were velvet and royal colors. So it was really a place for the rich and those coming to Indianapolis to stay. Yeah, it's just a bougie, bougie place at the time. They were really luxury. They're really trying to bring in the famous crowds. Yeah, the rich. rich. Yeah. Yeah. The retail spaces in the hotel were shops and they served both visitors and locals. So you didn't have to be a guest to go to them. Luis Deschler, who had run the cigar and newsstand at the Bates house before, grabbed a lease for the new Claypool Hotel. She paid $10,000 for an annual lease, and it was the second highest price for a business in a hotel in the United States at the time. 10,000 beans. 10,000 beans. I wonder what that would convert to nowadays. But still, like, yeah, imagine paying like $50,000 for a lease. For a lease in a hotel. Yeah. On Monday, May 18th, 1903, with an approximate staff of only 200, the doors to the Claypool Hotel were unlocked at 3.30 in the afternoon and crowds poured into the hotel. They wanted to look at the decor, they knew it was hot and upcoming, and the lobby was reportedly the largest lobby in the, of a hotel in the country at the time. Damn. It had a grand marble staircase that led to the mezzanine level. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. It's, yeah, it's bougie. It's bougie. Yeah. And it's been, I mean, obviously, it took them a long time to make, so yeah. makes sense. The Claypool Hotel, it was the place to go for clubbing, company banquets, pre-wedding dinners, anniversary parties, and it was the only place to stay if you were a visiting celebrity at the time. Anywhere else was not up to par. Not, yeah, not, not fancy enough. Mm-hmm. But on August of 1943, it was anything but. Lillian McNamara was a housekeeper at the Claypool Hotel, and she had worked there for several years, tending to rooms and making sure that guest rooms were clean, presentable, and didn't need any repairs before the next guest got there. The Claypool Hotel was the go-to event venue in Indianapolis at the time, and the people who stayed there expected a fresh room where everything worked, with clean sheets and presentable decor, and it simply would not be up to the Claypool standards to have leaky faucets, holes in the walls, or any gunk from your past tenants. I wish that was like that nowadays. I know. I go into the Hilton. I'm like, what is that stain? Yeah. Like, what is or that? that smell? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, is that dresser missing a handle? Is that blood in the shower? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Damn. We're not trying to call it Hilton, but. Hotels are gross. A Marriott type of gal. Yeah, I like the Providence Hotel we stayed at. Though. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was very nice. That was a very nice one. It reminds me of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just didn't get laundry it's kind of like, machines. It's like the wish version of this, though. Yeah. Wish <laughs> is a good way to put it. <laughs> the Claypool had a reputation to upkeep, and it was part of Lillian's job to make sure that this was upheld every single day. Every time Lillian tended to a room, she made a note of anything that didn't work or needed repairs, and as she did her routine cleaned, she vacuumed the floors, she replaced the sheets, she stocked the towels, and a quick phone call down to hotel maintenance assured that everything would be fixed before the next guest came in to occupy that room. Lately, several soldiers had been staying at the hotel as it was the height of World War II. 
The previous June, so June of 1942, Camp Atterbury had been founded about 35 miles south of Indianapolis. So not only were several military personnel traveling through the city on their way to other places, but Indianapolis also provided a really nice destination for anyone who had weekend passes from that camp. Being one of the best hotels in town, the Claypool Hotel became a favorite place to stay for soldiers and celebrities alike. Weird mix, but I respect it. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, I wonder, did they get a military discount? It's probably. Like Kim Kardashian and our attorney general. I mean, yeah, I mean, I get it. They probably get a solid discount for, you know, <laughs> fighting in war. <laughs> I understand. Do. I'd probably give them a discount. Lillian walked down the hall and she moved from room to room until she came to room number 729. She knocked politely. And she announced herself to anyone in the room. Rum service. It was past checkout, so no one should have been in the room. But sometimes, we all run a little late, try to get an extra 10 minutes free of charge. When no one had answered after a few moments, Lillian opened the door. She had barely begun to step through the door when she saw something that changed her view of the Claypool Hotel forever. On the floor of room 729 lie a body covered in blood. All Lillian could see, aside from the blood, was the uniform top, which said United States Army. Lillian closed the door and ran to the nearest telephone, and she called the switchboard operator and told them that someone had killed a soldier in room 729. Lillian asked them to then phone the police. Isn't that so crazy? There's so many steps back then. Yeah, you had to call somebody call sitting someone at else a to call switchboard. Someone else. Yeah. Yeah. The if op- they answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes they didn't. Yeah. Or all the lines were or busy. Busy, yeah. The operator immediately placed the call as Lillian hung up, and she returned to the room to wait for the police. And as she waited, Lillian took another look inside. She examined the body more carefully this time, and she realized that it was a woman, not a man. Originally, when she saw the uniform top, she just assumed that it had been a male soldier. The sight was so horrific that she didn't want to look any closer, so that's when she closed the door and left. The woman's body was on the floor, face up, with her arms pulled above her head. The skirt of her army uniform and the dark colored slip that had been under it was pushed up above her waist, exposing her. Mm -hmm. Her face was covered in blood and a large pool of blood had formed underneath her head on the floor. And there was a single quarter laying in the middle of the blood pool. Hmm. There were broken bottle pieces lying all around her head and there were deep slashes in her wrists, arms and neck. As Lillian had been looking at the woman's body before she shut the door, she felt sad and embarrassed for the woman based on how her skirt and undergarments were positioned. When Lillian closed the door, thinking she'd had enough, she actually went to go to her cart to get a bedsheet. She came back and she carefully placed the bedsheet over the exposed part of the woman's lower body, trying to give this woman some decency for when medical professionals arrived. That was very nice, sir. I know. Nowadays, they're like, don't even touch her. No, don't even touch her. Because they didn't have DNA or anything like that back then, so. It makes you feel like woman to woman, you have some empathy of like, I don't want to, I don't want you any more embarrassed. No, I think it was very respectful. Mm -hmm. Just nowadays, it's just like, don't even. Yeah, they're like, do not touch that. Do not touch that. Yeah. When the police arrived, they quickly identified the woman as Corporal Maoma L. Ridings, a 32-year-old Women's Army Auxiliary Corps member. The Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, the WAAC, was for women who wanted to enlist into the Army to aid the war effort that was happening over in Europe. Although at this time, women were prevented from joining the ranks of combat soldiers based on their gender. Of course. The WAAC still aided the war effort in important supporting roles for the troops. In 1943, members mostly worked in four different generalized fields within the WAAC, 
These were medical, clerical, baking, and driving. Baking. I love that. Medical. You can can bake them cookies. Yeah, make them some baked goods while the other one's like medical. (laughs) When they return from their foxholes, give them a nice warm sandwich. I'm sure. I mean, honestly, they probably would like a cookie, if I'm being honest. (laughs) A nice warm chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. And I'm not shitting on it. Like, my great grandma was a nurse in World War II, and I heard her stories, and I was like, yeah, I. You have to be one tough nut to be out there. Tough no cookie. No matter what you're doing. No pun intended. No, yeah. Myoma Ridings worked in the medical field as a physiotherapist. Ooh. Yeah. Myoma was born in Georgia, and she grew up in the town of Warm Springs. Before World War II, she had worked as a therapy nurse. And in 1931, Myoma got married and moved to New York. But she later divorced, and that's when she joined the WAAC in 1943. She had just arrived at Camp Atterbury five months later, where she then worked at the camp hospital. Myoma was very well known in the community, and she was very well liked. Everyone knew her as being a hard and efficient worker. And because Myoma Ridings was active in the military, the investigation was initially conducted by both military and civil police. However, military investigators quickly decided that this was a matter best suited for the civilian police due to the lack of evidence that someone else from the military was involved, and they withdrew from the main part of the investigation and then re-kind re of configured themselves to a more supporting role if anything needed was needed. Okay. Police immediately determined that Mayoma Ridings had been murdered. Oh, wow. Thank you. Solid work, When I guys. read that, I was like, yeah. Solid work. An autopsy was ordered, and the body was carefully removed from the crime scene and taken to the Fort Benjamin Harrison Hospital at Camp Atterbury. Police took notes on the hotel room where Myoma was found. Her body had been lying on the floor between the bed and the door. A blouse, believed to be Myoma's, was found in the closet, while her shoes were found on the floor near her body. They thought that the glass from the broken bottle might, might have been used to inflict the cuts on her arms, wrists, and her neck. One corner of the bed sheet had been turned down, but the bed was otherwise untouched. Okay. Mayoma's undergarments and a cape had been carefully laid on the bed, but there was no blood or rips or tears on them. All right. On the bureau was a glass containing some sort of mixture of soda and what was believed some, to be some kind of alcohol. They said it might have been whiskey. And then there was an empty soda bottle found underneath the bed. She likes her sodas. She likes her sodas. I feel like they all did back in the 40s. Mm, nice that shit had cocaine in it. So. <laughs> yeah. But they did. Jack Manaheim, who had been staying in room 727, directly next door to the room where Myoma Ridings had been staying, told investigators that he had been in his room all night and he hadn't heard anything from the other room. He stated that there hadn't been any sort of noise or any sort of commotion. He didn't even know that anything had gone down until the police showed up. Must be a heavy sleeper, bud. Yeah. Or they made those walls thick. They might have. Back then, construction was made of marble well yeah i mean and they actually cared to make good strong lasting yeah. stuff nowadays it's just paper thin i okay. bet you if i bang on my ceiling right now we'll get something back real fast <laughs> actually i can fact check that is true because we did that about an hour ago yeah that's so yeah. yeah yeah authorities also discovered that during the previous night the front desk at the hotel had received a quite strange phone call oh they told investigators that a woman had called them saying that they heard a WAC woman screaming in one of the rooms on the seventh floor. They suggested that the hotel call the police right away. So how does that work? What? Calling. You have, you can't, you have to call that switchboard. That's what I'm saying. So like someone in your room, you have to call yeah. the switchboard just to get down just to the to, hotel lobby. Yeah. And then the hotel lobby has Probably to Probably been faster just to run downstairs. <laughs> I know. 
The rum the call came from was registered to Corporal Samuel Kaplan, who was an enlisted man in the army and was also stationed at Camp Atterbury, alongside Mayoma. When police followed up on this, they were told that Corporal Kaplan had an argument with another woman who was in his room, and that she had called the switchboard operator for the hotel and asked them to call the police. Her call was in relation to her argument with Corporal Kaplan and had nothing to do with Mayoma Ridings, so it was just a coincidence that two WAAC women were in distress at the same time on the same floor at the same hotel. Big coincidence. Big coincidence. Oh, wow. I mean, Which nothing is ever a coincidence. Doesn't seem like it. The switchboard operator had received the call from Corporal Kaplan's room around the exact same time that Lillian had called the switchboard about Mayoma's body. In the midst of the commotion of these two calls, the operator had become confused about the calls when she was telling detectives about them, believing that they were one and the same. Oh, yeah. See, this is why switchboards, like, it's like playing telephone. <laughs> I guess, is. I mean, I guess that's probably why the game's called telephone. <laughs> But it's true. It's like you got you got all these people. Just you're not it's tag. Yeah. And then what happens if the operator doesn't say it right? You're like tapping more people into the message, and then God, yeah, that's just yeah, that'd be frustrating. Another person of interest was a mysterious woman who had been seen inside Mayoma's room by one of the hotel bellboys. He had taken a bucket of ice and some soft drinks to room 729, roughly three hours before Mayoma's body had been found. This bellhop described this woman as Caucasian with jet black hair. That's also, what time did room service come and check in on her? Mm, 8 a.m. So three hours before that, she was hammering down some Cokes and ice? Yeah. She was a big soda drinker. I mean, I we guess. We don't discriminate. <laughs> I guess not, but damn. Maybe a drug addict to the cocaine inside the Cokes, but. She's I know. Like, Give me my soda. She's like, I need that. People nowadays are addicted to soda. When I worked at Dunkin', people would get Cokes in the morning, and I was like... I know, I'm just saying, like, 5 a.m., she's she's ready to go. I know. Give me my Cokes. <laughs> the bellhop described the woman as Caucasian with jet black hair. He estimated that she was of average height and average build, so at this time period, it was five foot three. Holla. That's... Wow, really? And 140 pounds. You're not 140 pounds. And 130. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He noted that this woman was wearing a black dress with a white collar, with a small black hat with a veil that had been put up over the hat. When he came into the room, she had been sitting on the bed smoking a cigarette. When this got leaked to the media, reporters dubbed her as the women in black. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another thing, too, smoking cigarettes. I know. Yeah. In the hotel. In the hotel. The operator of the hotel service elevator, William Thomas Lemons, also told authorities that he had seen a woman fitting that description on the elevator that same night. Expensive hotels at the time often had employees run the hotel elevators for their guests because ain't nobody going to push their own button. Yeah, how dare you? <laughs> it's like I'm on floor 15. Thank you. I think, I mean, yeah, that was a big thing, though. Yeah, bellhops. It happened to me one time in New York, and I said... I just leaned over and pushed it, and he was horrified. Well, and also, I don't want some stranger (laughs) in my... I just hate strangers in elevators. It's the most (laughs) awkward thing ever. I'd rather just be alone, please. So this required them to spend long hours in the elevator, which allowed these people to see and interact with many people staying at the hotel. And they really got a feel for each guest as they heard conversations and saw what they were doing. William Lemons claimed that the woman was wearing a black dress with white trim along with a black hat with the veil. He stated that she had gotten on the elevator with a uniformed policeman on either the fourth or the fifth floor. They talked as they rode down and Lemons overheard the pair talking. William Lemons said that she that she told the police officer that 
he should go to a particular room because either someone had committed a murder in the room or they had committed suicide. William Lemons said that he let the policeman off on the seventh floor, but before he got off the elevator, the officer told the woman to leave before she got into any trouble. The door closed behind the officer, and William Lemons took the woman to the lobby, where she got off the elevator and she left the hotel. Police also discovered that a woman fitting that description had also been seen at another hotel at the front desk, and witnesses there claimed that she didn't stay long before she left in a taxi. Hmm. Okay, so she just hotel hopping. Yeah, she she reminds me of, like, you would never see her eyes. Like, she would always be one yeah, of those. Yeah, because the things. veil. Yeah. While police kept looking for a possible suspect, detectives were looking for a motive for Mayoma Riding's murder. Based on all the evidence found at the crime scene in the hotel room, the first theory that they had was that the murder was actually a robbery that had gone wrong. Authorities had found a total of only 21 cents in the room. That was aside from the quarter found lying in the pool of blood. So, so that would be 46, 40 cents. 46 cents. Yeah. Yep. Friends of Mayoma's also said that she was in the habit of carrying a lot of money especially much more than just a few cents. So it really didn't make any sense, no pun intended, yeah. that she only had some pocket change. Police also believed that it made sense for her to have more than that amount on her person, at least enough to cover her hotel room and entertainment for the weekend since she was off base. Well, yeah, and like there's no credit cards. No. So everything was cash back then. Right, and I know things were cheap, but... Not that cheap. <laughs> Not that cheap. I mean, she could go to a movie. Right. She'd get a burger. Oh, I wish. I know. How nice. While police were looking at the crime through this theory lens, the autopsy results came back from the medical examiner. Medical examiners had determined that the primary cause of death was blood loss from a deep cut to Mayoma's neck that had severed her jugular vein. Ooh, yeah, lots of blood. Yeah. Mayoma had also suffered severe blunt force trauma to her head, which, though undetermined, probably also contributed to her death. Probably. When the cuts on her wrists were examined, it was determined that, due to the lack of bleeding from them... These had been inflicted after Mayoma's death. However, it was noted that the cuts were deep enough to sever the radial arteries in both of her wrists. So regardless, they would have killed her anyways due to the blood loss. Yeah, and that's some vicious stuff. Annette. Somebody overkilled to kill. Yeah, yeah. Cut the jugular and then deep enough yeah. in, the, in the wrist to make it bleed. Yeah. A lot. Mm -hmm. Additionally, an eight-inch streak was found on Mayoma's right leg. And the coroner speculated that it could have been made with either a brush or somebody's finger. And that it may have been some kind of signature left by her killer. A brush? Yeah. Because back then they were metal. Oh. Uh, brushes were metal. They didn't have that little, like, ball cap on it. Yeah, it was like a pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> felt, felt real good. I bet it did. <laughs> it was also determined that it was very likely, although, again, could not be confirmed, that Mayoma had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. After the autopsy, Mayoma Riding's remains were transported to her family in Warm Springs, Georgia, for a proper funeral and burial. Even after the funeral and the burial, police back in Indiana continued to look into her death. They discovered that Mayoma frequently came to Indianapolis on her weekends, and she often hosted loud parties at the Claypool and other upscale hotels in the area. She's a little divorcee part T. She was, because apparently this had gotten her in a bit of trouble and had given her a reputation, and she was allegedly asked to not return to at least one of these hotels. We don't know which one it was, but I don't think it was the Claypool since she was staying since she was, since there, she was yeah. returned. At the Claypool, Mayoma had a reputation for leaving good tips for the bellboys. 
Oh. She frequently ordered ice buckets and bottles of soda, and the management there had no records of any complaints about her, and no one really complained about loud parties. Police found no evidence of any loud parties or even any enemies at the Claypool, but it did lead to another suspect, an 18-year-old man named Richard Fearand, and he had been telling people about Mayoma Riding's murder, claiming that he knew all kinds of things about what had happened. Apparently, someone had overheard his bragging, and they contacted the Indianapolis police. Through the switchboard. Through the switchboard. Richard Fearon was detained and brought down to the station for questioning. The police really wasted no time, and they charged him immediately with the murder. Oh, so God. <laughs> they brought him in front of a judge pretty fast. Wow. They were just like, yep. <laughs> yeah, no due like, process here. No. Richard Fearon was scared out of his mind, as he should be. He was literally quivering in his boots. And he quickly admitted that he actually didn't know anything about the murder. He said that he had just been playing around and that he was totally innocent. He was just talking to friends. The judge and the police believed him because he was kind of having a meltdown. And Richard was quickly released and then dismissed as a suspect. Yeah, back then they'll just be like, screw it, charged. Yeah. As they Impressive. Let, as they let Richard go, another suspect came into play for Indianapolis police. 23-year-old Robert Wolfington another one of the bellboys at the Claypool Hotel. And he had already been questioned by detectives, but then was dismissed. Mm. Apparently, Robert said that he had been called to Mayoma's room to deliver a second bucket of ice the night of the murder. According to Robert's story, when he came into the room with the ice, no one was there. However, a woman's voice had talked to him through the closed bathroom door. Robert said that the woman told him to leave the bucket on the dresser and to take the quarter left there as a tip. Robert said that he did as he was told, and then he left. Which, this reminds me of the scene in Home Alone, oh, where yeah. they come in and the movie's playing. You pervert! <laughs> I'm gonna give you to the count of ten to get your no good, was it, your lion, no good well, keister that's, that's off not my... the shower one. No, but it's the same movie thing yeah. that, like, he uses. Keister also, off I my door. I always thought that was so crazy, because it's like, how loud is that volume for you to think there's actual gunshots going on? <laughs> Like, that is some crazy stuff for I you to believe. I love that movie. I know. We watched one and two. I know. However, when police checked the official hotel records, they discovered that the hotel book that logged the daily rum deliveries didn't list a second call for the ice for Moama's rum. Oh, Moama's rum. Ooh. If Robert had really gone to the rum a second time like he had told them, then why didn't he sign the logbook? And police really began to look into Robert. Because what the heck is up, Robert? Because he was going, uh sneaking around he i was thinking that and i'm not trying to shame her because like if you're a divorcee and there's cute bellboys like girl do your thing yeah do your thing do your thing you're a soldier i mean if <laughs> he's it. yeah if he's above age yeah what's to say why not he's cute it's a little fling you give a good tip he your likes soldier. you yeah have at it go for you for it get Everybody your, get your beans fun. good we only live once unfortunately i mean not unfortunately <laughs> i don't know if i could do this again but <laughs> Robert Wolfington was from Lebanon, Indiana, and he had dropped out of high school in 1938 and eventually went on to join the Navy. After about a year and a half, Robert received a medical discharge because he would occasionally have seizures. And the Navy was like, bro, we're literally in a world war. We cannot have that here. Honestly, I'm surprised. <laughs> I feel Why? like during a world war, I'd be like, if you have one, hope you, you make it through. We need as many people as possible. Yeah, actually, that's true. That's why I, I would assume they'd be like, I hope it's not a bad but, one. But we were coming in as like the force that I know, should not we were be the reckoned neutral. with. And if we have a guy out there who's having seizures, that makes us look really weak. I know. 
I could just see it. And no shame to seizures. Like, no, no, Why are we shaming no it? Shame. No shame to You anything. should go to war. No. Man up, you seizure people. No, I'm just saying, like, I totally respect your... No, I'm glad the military told him to go home. Yeah. Because that's just dangerous for him. I just assumed that they were letting him, him stay, though. Any man with a gun, help us out. Especially with the draft, too. But, yeah, I'm it like, didn't I, seem like they were too picky. No, like, oh, you're having a seizure? Just hopefully get up, get up back up in 10 minutes. <laughs> we need you on the front line. Robert was married, but he was separated from his wife at this time. And when questioned by police, other employees at the hotel said that Robert had a nervous temperament. They told detectives that Robert had told them that he was having trouble sleeping because he couldn't stop thinking about the murder. This alarmed police because they began to wonder if he was sleepless and had insomnia because he was feeling guilty which i was kind of like i mean if a murder happened at my workplace i don't think i'd be able to sleep so like yeah it's a little you feel bad you feel you feel bad about this (laughs) why (laughs) guilty like my god so again feelings police brought him down to the station for questioning well when police went to the home of robert wolfington they got there they knocked on the door and an absolutely plastered Robert answered the door. Robert was so drunk that detectives couldn't even question him. The man could barely sit up, and they told him to mix in a water and that they would wait for him to sober up so they could question him. I was just having a good night. Can you imagine the police are sitting there with you absolutely hammered, just waiting? I had a buddy in college that was like that. They asked him, where are you from? And he said, Wednesday. <laughs> Shout out to Bart. They literally walked in. They are like... Because they were trying, because you know, like when you're back in college and you're underage drinking, yeah, and the cops would like be like, yes. okay, if you can't answer yeah. these questions, we're taking you off an ambulance. Yeah, yeah, they were like, which like not that that happened to me or anything. Yeah, that, did. but <laughs> yeah, they literally were like, where are you from? They were like, who are you? What's your name? Where are you from? He was like Wednesday, and they're like, get in the ambulance. Yeah, they, luckily his girlfriend was there, and he's she was like, I'll take you. Here we are. Once sober, detectives questioned Robert extensively about the murder. And surprisingly, detectives found him to be very open and to the point about what happened. He then let the police search his apartment. Well, he's also hammered. I I don't know if a water just makes that man's life come back to life, but he's probably (laughs) had no idea what the hell was happening. Just a little more hydrated. Robert, Robert was a ladies fan. Which they should have made this, not that they should sensationalize this, but like this whole storyline is very interesting that it should have been made into a movie because I think it would have like helped see all of this put together. Robert was your typical bar bro. He liked to hang out in a local bar where he liked to have a few drinks and get a little buzzed and dance both on the dance floor and then in the sheets with the women that he'd meet there. Heck yeah. In his apartment, police found several lipstick-stained shirts, along with several phone numbers from different women. Some were written in lipstick. Look at you, Mr. Suave. Spicy. Detectives also found a letter in his apartment addressed from his mom, and it was talking all about the murder. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. After two days, the police decided that Robert Wolfington didn't have anything to do with the murder and decided to let him go. They were like, Robert, the only thing you're guilty of is having a damn good time. Yeah, and getting women. And getting women. Then another tip came in. Police learned of a strange phone call to Myoma Riding's room on the night of the murder. Doesn't this case seem like a game of Clue? Well, it is a game of Clue, basically, because back then that's how it literally was. Like, there's no text messages. There's no tracking devices. There's no DNA. There's no, like, there's no rape kits. Right. There's no, like... 
everything is based off of what other people say. I know. It's all you got. It's crazy. And eyewitness accounts. Yeah. Which is so funny too, because like net like eyewitness accounts are so so bad. They don't to, go off no. of them now. No, you can't. <laughs> but back then. That's all you had. Probably Poli- people were on I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> They're all drinking cokes with cocaine in it. Though. Uh, really? I know. He's fixated. He's found his fixate, even though that was not part of this case. Well, she loved her cokes. Coke had cocaine. Okay. <laughs> Police traced it to a Corporal Emmanuel Fisher, who was also stationed at Camp Atterbury. Police went to question Corporal Fisher, and he told them that he'd gone out with Mayoma on several occasions and that he was supposed to have a date with her that night. Damn, homeboy got stood up. Mm, vice versa. Oh. Yeah. Corporal Fisher told the police that he had made a call that night because he had gotten caught up with some work stuff and he wasn't going to be able to make their date on time. How do you call them? Switchboard. Yes, I know this. Oh. <laughs> but my thing was be like, how do you keep up with this? I know. Because then it's like, so you have to know where she is. You have to know what room she's in. You have to just bank that she's going to be there. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, I need to call the hotel room, da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> like, damn, that's so much work. By the time that he could get to the hotel to pick Mayoma up, it was after 7 p.m., which was after their scheduled date time. Mm -mm. So he called to let Mayoma know, but no one answered. He tried again about an hour later, and this time a man answered the phone. Oh. Corporal Fisher assumed that Mayoma Riding had found another date for the night, so he hung up the phone and went to go find something else to do. Damn, it hurt right here in the heart. I know. Poor, poor guy. I was like, oh, goodness. That's got to be like top 10 worst things to have to experience. Like calling about a date. And I know. Dude answers the phone. Like, what do you even say back? Uh, like, Just let her know I'm going to be late. This is date. my cousin. <laughs> Sorry, bye. Click. It was another lead where the trail ended with no new answer. But like always, another lead came to surface. This lead was another hotel employee. Damn, they're just all about the employees. I know. The Claypool Hotel has scandals. I know. Those boys were stressed at work (laughs) every day. His name was never released, but police say that the employee was a convicted sex offender who had been previously sentenced to time in a mental institution. Why is he hired by them? (laughs) When police followed up, they quickly discovered that both the man's mother and the hotel management knew about his conviction and his incarceration. The employee's mother had found him the job at the hotel, and when he interviewed, he had been open and upfront about the situation to the hiring manager. The hotel agreed to hire him so that they could help him reintegrate back into general society, as he really didn't get off, give off any other red flags. He was trying to get back on his feet, and he did everything that the judicial system had asked of him. Okay. This employee had been working at the Claypool for three months prior to the murder and he was required to make reports back to the institution every week on his progress. His mother kept a very close and careful eye on him and told police that she hadn't made any note of him coming back late from work on the night of the murder. The story checked out, and he hadn't done anything alarming during his time at the hotel at the time of the night of the murder, and the police moved on with their investigation. I'm glad he was still being a good boy. Yep. At this point, police revised their theory from their theory that this was someone that Mayoma had known to actually being a complete stranger. Police believed that they could have hidden in her room, possibly in the closet, then jumped out and attacked her once she got back to the hotel. Yeah, I mean, the place is a fancy hotel, but it's just a locked door. Right. Because they don't have those key fob thingies we do. Yep. 
Police believe that this person may have waited for the right time, then came out, attacked, and then murdered Myoma Ridings, maybe sexually assaulted her, and then escaped through the hotel through any number of exits. With no cameras. And while the stranger theory couldn't be ruled out, Sam Blum, the deputy prosecutor who had been assigned to investigate the murder, along with Saul Robb, the chief deputy prosecutor of Marion County, were beyond positive that Myoma Ridings had actually known her killer. Based on the evidence that had been found, the two prosecutors believed the crime began by the killer coming in from outside the room. They either had a key to the room or had been led into the room by Myoma, by Myoma herself. But today, the case is still unsolved. Really? Mm-hmm. Is that it? No, there's more. Oh, I was about to say, I was like, what? <laughs> Sorry for the long pause. Yeah, that was a long pause. I was Sorry. like, okay, wait, was, what's next? Or is thinking. this it? No, that's not it. Um, so if you have any information for about this case, you can call Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS. And you can tell them I sent you. So is, is that it? No. Oh. <laughs> no. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so confused. <laughs> no. But Mayoma wasn't the only one who was murdered at the Claypool Hotel. Oh, okay. Well. What? I think, I mean, like, I feel like. Do you want to talk about one? Do you want to debrief for a second? I mean, the only thing I want to say is, like, I definitely think it was personal. And it was someone who knew her. Because who cuts, like, who makes sure that, that after you slit like slice her throat you and you you cut her wrists to make sure that she bleeds out no matter what mm-hmm. like to me that just seems like i don't i mean either it's personal like that or it's someone who really just didn't want her to ever talk about it and get caught do you think it was the woman in black but why right and to me cuz they think that she was hit on the head with a whiskey bottle that's what they think the weapon was i can't see a woman doing all of that especially like that woman would have been messy there was so much blood and that woman was up prancing around the hotel yeah i don't know but like i think it was definitely a man that would be my idea yeah well and you said she was a partier yeah so who knows how many men she's met or slept Mm -hmm. with or hung out with and who knows if she just ended up bringing one of the wrong guys back and the man answering the phone yeah yeah like maybe she just it just just she picked the wrong guy at the bar and he ended up, and they both got drunk, maybe. I know. Or something happened, and he just wasn't a good person. That scares me so much. Like, even now, like, nowadays, like, I have no shame if you pick people up at a bar. Like, like I say, you only live once. Hell yeah, do your thing. Be safe and protective. But though. my thing, like, man or woman, it is so scary who you bring home. Because if you don't know that person, you have no idea what that person's capable of or what they'll Not do. Not even close. And especially when you're drunk. 100%. And when you bring them into your home, your guard is let down because you're in your comfortable space. And they also know now where you live. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So we're not done. As the general public forgot about the murder of Mayoma Ridings, longtime residents of Indianapolis still remembered what had happened. And they kept sharing the story over the years to keep it alive. There were true crime magazines that would all also occasionally run stories about the murder. Again, trying to keep it alive. Well, look at that. There's true crime stories even back then. Mm Mm-hmm. Then, in 1954, murder happened again. Oh, my goodness. What's going on at this place? Two hotel maids were doing their rounds of the hotel, and they came across an awful smell in one of the rooms on the sixth floor. These two went off and found some help from another staff member, and the three of them went into the room, and the body of a young woman was found in the bottom drawer of the room's dresser. Oh, God. Yeah. How big is that dresser? Probably the size of yours. I don't know how I could fit. I don't know who could fit in that. 
I mean, maybe you could fit into that if I, like, bend you up, right? But <laughs> Goodness. I'm just saying, I don't think that's pretty impressive. I know. This woman was identified as 18-year-old Dorothy Poor, and she was from Clinton, Indiana, about an hour and a half away. And it was learned that Dorothy was in Indianapolis looking for a job, and the media got a hold of this story, and Dorothy Poor became known as the girl in the drawer. How did she afford that hotel? I wrote this a few days ago, so no. No, no, no. She Okay, we're, we have to get into it. Okay. Ignore me. Ignore what you just said. The murder was solved pretty quickly. And it's giving Harvey Weinstein. Ew. Yeah, that's where this is going to go. That guy's awful. He's awful. Not good. Dorothy knew that there were far more opportunities for a good paying job in Indianapolis. But immediately, once she got there, Dorothy had already run into quite a few problems. The first was the man at the bus stop. He was a little bit older than her. Seemed to be in his mid-twenties with dark hair and a dark complexion to match. This guy had followed Dorothy when she'd gotten off the bus and had offered to carry her suitcase for her. Dorothy thought that this guy was cute. She thought he was good looking. She had just moved to the city. So she was like, all right, I'll let him take my bags. He's cute. And like, why would I want to carry my bags? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> no thanks. No, I'm good. You carry my bags. So together, Dorothy and this man walked to the Union bus terminal and instead of handing the suitcase back to her when they arrived, the man carried it with him into the men's restroom. Weird. He, yeah. He smiled, then told Dorothy that he didn't want her going anywhere without him knowing about it. Dorothy Weird. immediately got the ick. I'd be like, excuse me, get the fuck out of here. Yes. <laughs> this guy is a creep. And two, bringing someone else's suitcase into a restroom is just foul. You just met me. Yeah, that's rude, actually. Bro, you just met me. Not a good first impression. Well, she, and who knows how young she looked. I know. When he came back out a few minutes later, Dorothy was visibly upset and she demanded that he give her back her suitcase. The man did so with no argument and Dorothy immediately left for her hotel. After a while of walking, Dorothy noticed that a different man had started following her. When she was almost to her hotel, the stranger finally approached Dorothy and introduced himself. He told her that he was a bus terminal detective and that it was his responsibility to look out for the girls just like her. She quickly got a really bad feeling and walked way away and went inside the hotel. The man did not follow. This That's so weird. Why, like, she's already left the bus terminal. Right? I think she's good. <laughs> I think she's fine. She actually held her own. You were useless in that situation. I've now been at my hotel and you're now just coming to talk to me. Yeah. The bus stations are long gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you could have stopped me a long time ago. Right. You could have actually intervened when that other guy took my suitcase yeah, to the like, bathroom. Yeah, like, why were you not there for that? <laughs> Where were you? You're a shit detective. Yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> ass at your job, sir. The city was new to Dorothy since she'd grown up in a smaller town, and it had a lot more people than she was used to because, again, the town she grew up in was really small. And did they not lock their doors at night? No. No. Figured. Dorothy had grown up in Clinton, Indiana, and after her parents had gotten divorced several years earlier, she and her mother, Hazel, had moved next door to Dorothy's grandmother, Lily Dancy. The name Lily in this story is Lily. really associated with the Claypool Hotel. Dorothy was determined to make a good life for herself. Her mother had been a, a waitress at a local restaurant, and Dorothy had to sometimes come in and help out when it got too busy. She also worked as a waitress at another local restaurant, Mills Barbecue. Dorothy had seen enough in Clinton and with her mother to know that this wasn't the life that she wanted for herself. She wanted something more, something bigger. Something in a big city. In a big city. Something that allowed her to live a comfortable life for herself with a job that allowed her to sit down and remain calm and work hard. 
In high school, Dorothy was an excellent student who had specialized in typing and shorthand, which is a way of taking dictation very quickly using special abbreviations and symbols. Dorothy's goal was to start... <laughs> it's so a- crazy. I know. Because nowadays it's like computer. <laughs> I know. It's AI. Yeah. AI. Literally for our Zoom calls, they're like, just have AI take your notes. I'm like, what? Mm, that's so weird. It's so scary. Dorothy's goal was to start a career in the corporate world, and she felt that these skills would give her an advantage in finding a job in that field, especially in the big city. Dorothy also knew that she probably wasn't going to find a great corporate job in small town Clinton. She'd heard of Indianapolis and that it was a lively, big city, and on this day, the day that she got to the hotel, she sat on her bed of her hotel room, and Dorothy knew that she was right. Quote, this was the place that she needed to be, and there was an opportunity for her here. That's crazy to think, though, at 18 years old. I know. Wow. Dorothy was about five feet, six inches tall with a slim build, dark hair, and a bright, big, winning smile. Dorothy had always gotten quite a bit of attention from men, but something was very different about the two that she'd encountered in Indianapolis. Five, but it, six is pretty tall back then, too. I know. But it was bedtime. So Dorothy turned out the light and laid on the bed, but she couldn't calm down enough to sleep. So finally, she gave up and stayed up through the rest of the night. A little while later, Dorothy went back home to Clinton, and one of her first stops was to visit her grandmother, Lily. The two were very close, and Dorothy had always confided in her. Dorothy told Lily everything that had happened with these two men back in Indianapolis, and now that Dorothy was back home, in a town that she'd known everyone and everything, things seemed to be a little bit safer. Afterwards, Dorothy felt better, and she told herself that what happened in Indianapolis was over-exaggerated by herself. She had big dreams, a corporate job, a better, more glamorous life for herself just straight ahead. She could make it work, and she had to. On July 6, 1954, Hazel Poor drove Dorothy back to Indianapolis and rented her a room at the Adams Hotel. Dorothy had made an appointment to take a civil service examination on July 8th, just two days away, and passing it meant access to well-paying government jobs and a step closer to a life that Dorothy had always wanted. On the way back to Clinton, Hazel began to have second thoughts about having her only child living so far away, in a really big city that was unknown to her. She already missed Dorothy terribly, and and desperately wanted her to come back home and to start a life in a town close to her. As soon as she got back to Clinton, Hazel called her daughter and begged her to come home. Reluctantly, Dorothy obeyed and went back home on July 9th, so she never took the civil service exam. Oh, at least let her take the test. I'm like, Hazel! Yeah, let your daughter bloom. I know. I mean, I get it. 18 is young to be that far away, but... And I get it. You're nervous after those two creepy men, but like... I mean, there's so many creepy men nowadays. I would let her take the test and then come Just let her take the test. See if she can pass it. Just let her take it. If she passes it, then you you don't have to go to me. I don't know. Yeah. Probably still opportunity. Don't make her come home and be a waitress. Yep. Over the next few days, Dorothy gradually became more and more restless. She knew that her mother loved her and wanted her to stay close to home to be with family and friends and for safety. But again, Dorothy had big dreams of her own that she could not achieve in Clinton. In the big city. In the big city. <laughs> On July 14th, Dorothy said goodbye to her mother, Hazel, and her grandma, Lily. Goddamn, she is just going back and forth. That's a lot of trips. And she returned to Indianapolis a third time. Dorothy had made arrangements to stay with a former classmate, Shirley Coletti. Shirley Coletti was living with her aunt and uncle, Henry Crocker Jr. I love these names in the story. Henry Crocker? I love these names. Did he make the Crockpot? Henry Crocker Jr. I think of Crocker Butter. 
Is that a butter? Uh, With a brown? It's like a brown tub. I have no idea. I don't know. My mom wouldn't let us get that kind of butter. We had to use the sticks growing up. The crock pot. The hard ass stick of butter in the dish. Yeah, but my parents never put the stick of butter in the fridge. Oh, mine did. We would have those little butter (laughs) jar butter things. Yeah. So it was like it was like soft. Yeah, we weren't allowed to have that. Why? Because we had no money, so she would buy the cheap stick of butter. Yeah, but then you put it out. No, I'm saying you. Oh. We bought the sticks of butter too, but you don't just leave the one you're using in the fridge. You put it on one of those butter. Oh, like a butter bell. Yeah, and then so when you opened it up, there's the stick of butter, and you it was soft. <laughs> Mine. Was... I don't know why y'all going <laughs> ice picking for some butter. Mine was still in the butter, like paper in the butter dish. So you'd peel the papers take the hard butter and just kind of plop it on your bread nope you guys did it wrong <laughs> but it's okay dorothy told her mother that she would call that thursday and let her know how things were going and let her know if she really did want to come home or if she really did want to stay in indianapolis but then thursday came and went and dorothy never called hazel tried not to think too much of it and told herself that dorothy was young she's in a new city she's working hard to find a job she's trying to make friends she probably had just gotten busy and forgotten to call no well, biggie. You can't really do anything else. <laughs> what? Except call? Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> Got to kind of make up your own excuses because there is no find right. your friends. Hazel also knew that Dorothy was supposed to come home that Saturday and she would just talk to her then. Two days. Golly. How many times? Is- but then Saturday came and Dorothy never came home. And this wasn't like her at all. Hazel immediately knew that something was very wrong. So Hazel called the Crockers. The couple who Dorothy was staying with in Indianapolis. They told her that Dorothy had called them on July 14th and said that it was so late that she had decided to just get a hotel room for the night in the city. The following day, Dorothy... Oh, okay. Sorry. It's, I was looking it up. Clifton's only an hour and 17 minutes away from Indianapolis. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not too, too far. Mm-mm. But damn. I know. It's not, damn. It's still, yeah, hefty. <laughs> the following day, Dorothy never came to their house. And Coletti said that Dorothy had also told her that she would phone on the previous Thursday, but never had. And then, a few days later, Ella Mae Bobby and Julia Bell... Two, Ella Mae? Ella Mae Bobby and Julia Bell, two maids at the Claypool Hotel, were performing their usual duties of cleaning rooms and freshening everything up for the next guest, calling maintenance, maintenance if anything was out of whack. They were on the sixth floor of the Claypool Hotel. The first thing that they noticed when they entered room 665 was the smell. Oh, one off from 666. I know. Ooh. It was overpowering and it was a rotten, foul smell. Like something had either severely spoiled or had passed away. As best as they could tell, they could tell that it was coming from the bureau. Ew. They left the room and called William Kimbrough, another employee at the hotel. And when William entered the room, he was trying his best to keep from gagging. This is just, I'm reiterating it because like, I'm not trying to disrespect her. But he carefully approached the bureau because he agreed that it was coming from that dresser. The stench was so bad that the three of them could barely breathe. William slowly pulled open the top drawer. Empty. He pulled open the middle drawer. Empty. That meant that whatever it was had to have been in the bottom drawer. Instead of opening the last drawer... William decided to just remove the middle one and look down into that drawer from above. Seeing that bottom drawer from the inside, he looked down into the bureau. And there, stuffed inside, was the dead, bloated body of a female human being. Hmm. William Kimbrough left the room and he immediately told 
and he immediately told hotel management, who ran to call the Indianapolis Police Department. Homicide detectives arrived at the scene pretty quickly, and this team was led by Captain Robert E. Riley. Robert Riley. Investigators determined that the body belonged to a young woman. Her body was wearing a bra, panties, and a slip. The body was too bloated to determine an immediate cause of death. They learned that this room, 665, was registered to a man named John O'Shea. O'Shea had left a New York City address with the front desk and had told people that he worked for a finance company. O'Shea had rented the room for a few days over the weekend, but he hadn't ever checked out. O'Shea immediately became the prime suspect in this case, and detectives set out to find him and bring that man in for questioning. I mean, it's a better start than the last case. I know. Witnesses at the hotel who'd seen O'Shea described him as being a well-dressed man in his mid-30s with a medium height and medium build. A woman's handbag made of blue cloth was also found behind the room's radiator, and a pair of blue jeans, a white blouse, and a pair of sandals, which had a broken blue belt, were found in the utility closet of the room, and they were shoved as far back into the back as they could go. And they were shoved as far back as they could go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> da 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 Yeah. Indianapolis had just experienced a heat wave, ew. and there was no air conditioning on the sixth floor of the Claypool ew, Hotel. Ew, ew, ew. The extreme temperatures had caused the body to decompose faster than normal, and that's what had caused that bad odor. Mm. Firemen were able to remove the body from the bureau, but the smell was so bad that they had to wear gas masks in order to do so. Gross. The smell had permeated the entire floor of that hotel, and hotel management temporarily evacuated the guests on the floor until the body had been taken out of the building and the smell had subsided. I'd want a full refund. Once at the coroner's office, the body was identified as 18-year-old Dorothy Poor, and the coroner determined that she had been dead for upwards of 36 hours, placing her death on either the previous Thursday or possibly even Friday. That's crazy, though, that 36 hours and it got that smelly. You know, I know. how hot that place was? I know. God, I'm so glad we grew up with, with AC. Oh, I thought you were saying that we didn't grow up in Indiana. Like, oh, no, no, AC. Yeah. So glad. Dorothy's body was so badly decomposed that the doctors couldn't tell if there were any bruises or ligature marks on her neck, both telltale signs that would have meant that she was strangled. But regardless, as near as they could determine, she had died from either strangulation or had been suffocated with a pillow. Oh. I know. The coroner's office then sent Dorothy's internal organs off for further toxicology uh, toxicology results. They wanted to rule out any drugging or poisoning. Detectives learned that Dorothy had been staying at the Lorraine Hotel, not the Claypool Hotel. Yeah. When detectives went to the Lorraine Hotel, they found her belongings there, but nothing gave them any clue as to who had killed her or why she was even at the Claypool Hotel. Well, I think the biggest thing is go to the guy. I know. <laughs> She's at someone else's guy, random guy's hotel room. I would assume that's probably <laughs> the suspect. A witness at the Lorraine Hotel had seen Dorothy leaving the previous Thursday evening wearing a blue je- wearing blue jeans and other clothes that were found in the utility closet at the Claypool. Dang, so she didn't even call her mama. I know. This meant it was very likely that she had left almost directly from the Lorraine and then gone over to the Claypool. Yeah, and you never you know her ick. my my guess already is like he was offering her a job. You're so good at this. Oh. Maybe it's because you actually went to police academy, but... I mean, no, I didn't, but... <laughs> didn't you actually? You did. Not far, no. Yeah. But, the um, but I mean, yeah, she's an 18-year-old girl looking for a job in a big city. I know. And, like, she comes from a town where you probably trusted people a lot easier. Yeah. Helene, you already got guys being like, I'm a detective for the bus. Yeah. And she, what? 
But yeah, that's what it seems like. But proceed. Detectives believe that Dorothy must have gone to room 665 for some kind of job interview, presumably with this Mr. John O'Shea, since that was what she was in Indianapolis for. What they couldn't understand is why she would have gone to an important job interview dressed so casually. Because back then, you had to be dressed to the nines for jobs. When word got back to Dorothy's mother, Hazel Poor, she was absolutely devastated. She told detectives that Dorothy must have been forced into the room at the Claypool because there was no way that she would have ever gone to a hotel room alone with a man, especially after what had happened earlier in Indianapolis. According to hotel staff, O'Shea had checked into the Claypool Hotel on Thursday. On Friday afternoon, O'Shea paid to stay in the room again, and a few hours after he paid, two maids went into room 665 to clean. O'Shea was in the room when they did, and they noted that he had a pleasant conversation with them. As they cleaned, he casually pointed out a spot of blood on the bed linen. By way of explanation, he said that he suffered from sinus troubles and had gotten a nosebleed. He also told them that he wanted them to clean the room because he was expecting his mother to visit him and he wanted it to look nice. On Saturday, O'Shea never checked out of the hotel. Also, I've never, ever, ever, ever been in a room while I, the cleaning service came in. <laughs> Me either. I put do not disturb I on the door. I get frightened when they come. Yeah. I'm like, do not disturb on the door unless yeah. I'm not there. Like, I would never just sit in there and just watch them, watch them clean. And hotel rooms are small, so I'd be like, I don't know where I'm and supposed like, to And like, why go. are you there? Go do something. <laughs> the room remained unoccupied until the cleaning staff entered the following day and Dorothy Poor's body was discovered. Witnesses had allegedly seen Dorothy Poor in the elevator at the Claypool Hotel with O'Shea. And it was noted that there were that the two of them were very affectionate. And oh. apparently O'Shea told the elevator operator that Dorothy was his, quote, sweetheart. Oh, God. The two of them got off on the sixth floor, and police theorized that Dorothy might have been drugged before O'Shea brought her to the hotel room. The next morning, Dorothy was seen leaving her own accommodation at the Lorraine Hotel after paying her room bill and checking out. As police searched for O'Shea, they finally had their first breakthrough when Morris Riskin, the vice president of a local laundry and cleaning company, contacted the police about a former employee. He had seen the sketch of O'Shea in the newspapers and thought that he looked like a man named Victor Lively. Oh. Riskin explained that Victor Lively had been an absolutely crazy man, more so crazy about women, even shouting at them as they walked down the street. He was always talking about how good looking women are, trying to get them to sleep with him, calling out to them, just being a literal scoundrel. Yeah, a little man whore. When detectives saw a photo of Victor Lively, the resemblance to the police sketch was a perfect match. Detectives began showing the photo to the staff of the Claypool Hotel, and they all said that the photo was of Mr. John O'Shea, the man in room 665. So now that they had a real name, the Indianapolis police shifted their focus from finding John O'Shea to finding Victor Lively. Well, shout out to the VP of the laundromat. Too. I know. Good on you, big guy. Investigators discovered that he was staying at another local hotel down the street. God, where hotels were the place to were be. Hopping. Would you rather have a house? No. <laughs> no. I'm a hotel. I'm float. a hotel guy. That's my type of vibe. Well, Victor had checked in under his actual name at this one, and a handwriting comparison between the two signatures, Victor Lively and John O'Shea, showed that they were a definite match. Police learned that Victor Lively was born in New Orleans and had been raised in Beaumont, Texas. 
Indianapolis police reached out and law enforcement officials there confirmed that Lively was a known criminal and a sex offender. On several occasions, Lively had placed Help Wanted ads in local newspapers, offering to hire women for legitimate-sounding jobs. But then, when the woman called, he would tell them to meet him in a room at a local hotel. When the unsuspecting women would arrive, the interview would start innocently enough, like a real interview. But it always took a creepy, perverted turn, and this is why I'm saying it's giving Harvey Weinstein... On several occasions, part of the interview was having the women strip down to their underwear and walk around the room for Lively as he watched. That makes no sense. No, <laughs> right. For a corporate job. Hi, I'm here for your sales position. Get naked. I must see what you're working with. Get naked and strut. He'd be like, no, sorry, I don't think you heard me. Police in LaGrange, Illinois also contacted the Indianapolis authorities about Lively. Lively had lived there for a short time doing some work as a cab driver, and several women had filed complaints with the police about him. Many of these complaints had fallen into the category of unwanted sexual nature. A few days after the discovery of Dorothy Poor's body, St. Louis County Sheriff's deputies Robert E. Wilkerson and Carol Rowland were driving along Route 66 west of the city of St. Louis. As they drove, they saw a man step out from behind some bushes alongside the road. Okay. The man was pretty short with red hair and he was wearing a yellow shirt and blue pants and the deputies thought, damn dude, get out of the road. But then they just kept driving. They were like, oh, he's probably hitchhiking. A little bit. As they did, something about the man really pulled at one of the deputies, Wilkerson. He began rustling around the passenger seat of the car looking for something and then he pulled out the local paper. Wilkerson flipped through some of the pages and he found the article written on Dorothy's murder, which contained a description of the, of the prime suspect. The paper even named the suspect, Victor Lively. He was a perfect match for the man that they had just seen on the side of the road. Damn, good on him. These two deputies turned the car around and they drove back and they found the man walking on the shoulder of the road. So they pulled over and they went over to talk to him. When deputies asked for his identification, he said he didn't have any. He said his name was Victor Lively, and he was hitchhiking his way to Texas. No way he just threw it out there. Victor Lively in the flesh. Good job, big guy. Wilkerson and Rowland looked at each other, and they took Lively into custody, and they drove him back to the sheriff's office for questioning. They learned that Lively had been living and working in East St. Louis, Illinois, as a salesman for a home improvement company. God, he gets around fast. I know. I'm like, damn, boy. They said that he was a small, arrogant man, but seemed to get along with everybody well enough. While working for the contracting company, Lively took a bus into Indianapolis on July 10th and 11th, then came back to Illinois for the two days after that. On July 13th, Lively told his boss, Al Cohen, that his wife was in Indianapolis visiting friends and that he was going to go see her. That was on July 14th. From that point on, Lively's whereabouts matched perfectly with what Indianapolis detectives had found out about his movements in the city. When Lively arrived in Indianapolis, he checked into the Kirkwood Hotel, and he boldly asked the staff if there was a way that he could have a woman brought to his room. Oh, wow. They're like, you'll be in room 612. And he's like, can I get a woman? Can you get me a woman? What does he think this is? A hostel? By this, Victor Lively was asking them if they could provide him with a sex worker the front desk told him sir we can get you fresh towels we can get you a breakfast buffet we can even get you room service but we cannot get you a woman who is dtf yeah that's bold 
That is not on our list of amenities. I don't think it's on any <laughs> hotel's amenities. If it is, it we is have... Oh. in Vegas. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Lovely. That's why I will never be attending. I checked into Vegas and they said this, like, they handed us a card and they said, if you need a woman, you can call this number. Nothing about that like, place appeals to me. No, thank you. Does not appeal to me. No. No. Dirty. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's why I'm, I would be like, oh, my God, where am I staying? <laughs> Do you clean the sheets, please? (laughs) The next day on July 15th, Lively checked out of the Kirkwood Hotel. And later that day, a cab driver named Wesley Ray Irvin drove Victor Lively to the Claypool Hotel. When interviewed, Irvin said that Lively also asked him where he could find some sex workers. Boy is horny. He said that he would pay upwards of $150 for one. Irvin said he was not interested in helping him and kicked him out of his cab. A few days later, Lively had walked out of the hotel and returned to East St. Louis. Witnesses there said that he seemed more irritable when he got back, like he was always on edge. Some even said it was after he had seen the headlines of Dorothy Poor's murder. Lively went back to Al Cohen and demanded his paycheck. And Cohen gave it to him, and Lively left to hitchhike his way back to Texas. And this was when the deputies had found him. Lively had gained a lot of attention in the newspapers, so there was not only the sheriff and his staff present, but also a few a few newspaper reporters, and they were even allowed to take photos, which I'll post. In oh, the okay. Notes. Yeah, you can see them. At first, Lively was calm, cool, and collected. He showcased an arrogant confidence, answering questions like he was just having a polite conversation. But as the questions went on, Lively became increasingly agitated. And he didn't quite seem as confident, and he would periodically run his hands over his face, stressed and annoyed. And as the questioning continued, Lively broke. Victor Lively confessed to the murder of Dorothy Poor. Well, that didn't take long. He said that after he had checked out of the Kirkwood Hotel, the hotel where he initially stayed at, he spent a good part of the day drinking. When he was done, he went out for a walk. Lively eventually ended up at the Claypool Hotel, where he checked in under the name of John O'Shea. He put his belongings in his room, room 665, and then left again. He ran into a couple of associates of his and drove around the city for a while, and Lively said he left them and went to a local theater. Later, he ended up talking to a cab cab driver who knew where he could find a sex worker. The only thing was that there were two women, and he would have to pay for both of them. Well, Lively protested and said that he only wanted one, and the cab driver said, well, beggars can't be choosers. You either take them both or you get out. What is, and he's like, didn't he, what didn't he, he started drinking like eight hours ago? <laughs> yeah. My God, dude, I need a nap. Lively said, all right, fine, I'll take them both and return to the Claypool Hotel. Wow. He said later on, the two women showed up to his room and he said that they introduced themselves as Dorothy and Ruth. Oh. Contrary to witness statements, Lively said that he had never been kissing Dorothy in the elevator of the Claypool Hotel, nor had he told anyone that she was his sweetheart. The room was hot due to the heat wave and no AC, so Dorothy took off her blue jeans and white blouse. This is all what he's saying happened. He said that they talked about jobs for the next hour and a half, and Lively said that Ruth was ready to leave, but Dorothy wanted to stay. Lively said that the two women began arguing. Dorothy finally told Ruth to leave, and she would just stay by herself. Well, Ruth became angrier, and the argument continued between the two of them. This time, they fought about Lively's drinking. And suddenly, Ruth just hit him over the head with something. Oh, my God. They were mad. They just switched the argument to him. Like, <laughs> like I, I want to leave, but why are you drinking so much? Get him. <laughs> God. 
Lively said that he became dazed and confused, and he watched as they both just went into his bathroom. They carried on their argument, and Ruth So they hit him over the head and then (laughs) proceeded to go back to their argument. (laughs) Wow. What a strange day for him. What a strange day for that guy. Ruth came out, and she stormed out of the hotel room, still yelling and crying. Well, then it was just Lively and Dorothy alone in the room. And Lively said that she just picked up the bottle of gin and started drinking it. She then got annoyed, and she told him, I don't even like gin, and she wanted some whiskey. Well, Lively lied and said that it was too late to go get any, even though he knew he could go get some from one of the bellboys, but he didn't want to spend money on alcohol for this girl. When he told her this, Lively said that Dorothy just flew into a rage. She slapped him across the face and called him names, and Lively said that he reached up to grab her arms, but somehow... He accidentally wrapped his hands around her throat and squeezed too hard. Oh, oh, wow. I've, I've, been, I've done that myself. He said that he accidentally clenched down tightly on Dorothy's little neck for a minute and then once more. She had long since stopped struggling, but he held his grip tighter for a while longer because he wanted to make sure she was not fighting him. Finally, he let go and Dorothy dropped heively to the bed. She was still breathing, and Lively was really worried, so he went to get a wet towel and tried to wipe down her face, trying to wake her up. And as he did, Dorothy, quote, started gurgling and sucking air, and then she just stopped. Victor knew that Dorothy was dead, and he knew that he did it. And Lively said at this point it was 2 a.m., and he just wasn't sure what to do. But he knew he was screwed, so he sat up the rest of the night, drinking the last of the gin, getting drunk by himself. Reached for her arm, yeah. but accidentally strangled her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, sir, you couldn't have thought of anything better on that That's, little walk that you were taking back to Texas. That was so wild. I, Me, myself, have been in that position. Yeah, sometimes I'm just trying to go hug Chase and I end up, <laughs> I end up strangling I end up him. and choking, holding yeah, her and putting, putting her to the ground. unconscious. Yeah. I don't know. Things happen. Crazy life. I'm sorry. When detectives were like, hey, what about Dorothy's body in the dresser? He said, I don't remember. But I probably did it just in a drunken stupor. Oh, okay. He said he then gathered up Dorothy's clothes and put them in the utility closet. When he was finished, Lively gathered his things and walked out of the main entrance of the hotel. He had already paid to keep the hotel room for another night, so he didn't bother checking out. He walked to the bus station and returned to East St. Louis. And after signing a confession, Lively was put in jail for the night and then transported back to Indianapolis and given over to the police department there. I mean, I, technically, I guess he still confessed to murdering her. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you got him anyways. Well, <laughs> on the way. Oh. Lively told detectives, hey, hey, you know those guys back in East St. Louis? I didn't tell them the whole truth. Oh, good I want to. I want to tell you guys the whole truth when I get there. Lively said that when Ruth and Dorothy had come to his room, he had just assumed that they were sex workers, that they had been sent there as gifts, as gift sex workers. Oh, yes, of course. However, when he let them in, he quickly realized that they weren't. Lively explained that Dorothy had been a, quote, good girl. There had never been any sort of argument, and she never had attacked him. And when Ruth left, he tried to have sex with Dorothy. But she didn't want to, but he tried to force her. And Lively said he managed to get most of her clothes off, but Dorothy then started screaming. And that's when he just strangled her. Much different. So, yeah, that's a lot different. Mm -hmm. You assume she was a sex worker and then raped her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On August 12th, 1954, Victor Lively was indicted for the murder of Dorothy Poor. While the lawyers prepared for trial, detectives focused their efforts on finding the mysterious Ruth that Lively insisted was with Dorothy. 
Not only could she possibly shed more light on the case and what happened the night of the murder, but Lively's defense attorney wanted her as a witness. The first person they identified as a possible Ruth was Ruth Marie Taylor, a young woman who worked as a clerk at the Adams Hotel. Her and Dorothy had met while Dorothy was staying there for one of her job trips, and the two had become really good friends. Ruth Taylor freely answered all detectives' questions, but she told them that she had no idea who Victor Lively was, let alone been to a hotel room with him, and she hadn't even ever been inside the Claypool Hotel before. The police were inclined to believe her, but to make sure they showed her to Lively and asked if it was the right person he knew as Ruth, Lively shook his head and said it wasn't. He'd never seen Taylor before. Victor claimed that the woman that he had met the night of the murder was middle-aged, with an average height and build with lighter-colored hair. He thought that it may have been a dirty blonde or a red. She also had a visible scar on her forehead, although she styled her hair in such a way to hide it. Victor was released, and the search continued. What? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh no, Taylor was released. Okay, I was like, excuse me? <laughs> no, no, no. Victor was released. I mean, <laughs> Taylor... Shit. <laughs> in mid-September, police found another likely candidate. Her name was Grace. She was a burlesque dancer who lived in Indianapolis with her husband and six children, but she denied ever having known Victor Lively or Dorothy Poor. However, when Lively saw her, he told detectives he was almost positive that Lawson was the woman he had met. Lawson was adamant. Or Grace, her last name is Lawson. She kept telling the police that she wasn't the one that they were looking for, and finally she demanded to be given a lie detector test to settle the issue. Police consented, arrangements were made, and Grace was given the test. But oddly, the machine didn't react to any of the answers that Grace had given. There was nothing definitive enough to say whether she was telling the truth or not. Mm. And although they were baffled at why the machine hadn't worked, detectives released Grace. In late November 1954, Victor Lively... Victor Lively's murder trial began, and it was held in a small basement courtroom that was packed with spectators. A few hundred others were crowded in the halls outside, eagerly waiting and listening to what they could. Eleven witnesses were called on the first day, including Dr. Roy Storms, who was the coroner who had examined Dorothy's body. He stated that her cause of death was strangulation, just like Victor Lively had confessed, and a toxicology report had revealed that Dorothy hadn't been drugged, which was initially suspected. Other witnesses that day included hotel employees, doctors, police, and the firemen who had removed the body from room 665. And the next day, Victor Lively was put on the witness stand. To everyone's surprise, he denied his first two confessions, saying that the police had forced him to make them. The sheriff and the deputies who had initially interviewed him denied it, but Victor insisted. And when asked if he was physically abused, Lively said he hadn't been, but he was afraid that it could happen when he signed the confession by the police. Oh, so you confessed to a murder and then they just beat your ass? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes no sense. Unfortunately for Victor, the entire interview and the confession had actually been conducted in the presence of not only the policemen, but secretaries and reporters who had taken pictures during that interview. Love it. Didn't know that that was allowed, but we love a documentation. Yeah, I'm all about it. In another surprise twist, Victor again went against his previous confession and, com and claimed that Dorothy had willingly had sex with him. This time, he said that he and Dorothy had gone for a walk, and when they got back to the hotel room, Ruth had left, and Dorothy and Victor began having sex. In the middle of the act, he said that she suddenly let out a high-pitched scream, and he passed out from being too drunk. This guy is all over the place. When he woke up the next morning, Dorothy was dead. And she shoved herself in the drawer. Yeah. 
He then told the courtroom, I swear I'm telling the truth. On the last day of the trial, Grace Lawson, who lively still to this day, well, he's dead now, but who he said was Ruth from the night of the murder, took the stand. And the witnesses just before her testified that Grace had been working as a burlesque theater on the night of the murder. There was no way that she could have been out at the Claypool Hotel. <laughs> After nine hours of deliberation, the jury found Victor Lively guilty of murder and sentenced him to life in prison. After the verdict was delivered, he turned and sobbed on his defense attorney's shoulder. The lawyer tried consoling him, telling him, quote, I saved your life, didn't I? So he wasn't even poor. Like, right? Like, he's like, yeah, I'm glad. I mean, he's I like, at least you didn't get the death penalty. I'm like, ew. I mean, Lively was, I mean, he's guessing. He's do you know how hard it would be to be a lawyer when your own client is changing his story every fucking <laughs> Be like, be like, bro, you are not he's helpful. on the stand just yeah. blurting things out. And you're yeah, like, like, oh right, my you God. know what? I'm done helping you. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to try and not let you get the death penalty and we'll call it a day. Victor Lively was sent to Indiana State Prison to serve out his sentence and he was paroled in 1980. Wow. And died of heart disease in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1981. Now, the craziest thing that I thought is Dorothy's grandmother, Lillian, told police. And reporters that before Dorothy had moved to Indianapolis, before her first trip, she had gone to a fortune teller. The fortune teller told her she should not go to Indianapolis to look for a job as she, quote, faced death upstairs in a new building. Yeah, I don't like that. I will never get my fortune told. I won't go. I will never go to one of those people. Huh? I will never go to someone like that. No. I will never. I don't need to know what's uh, going to happen. No, absolutely not. Because then it will just stress me out the rest of my life. Uh, Lillian Darcy, her grandmother, said that the fortune teller, quote, told her to never go back to Indianapolis as she was going to meet a person with light coloring that would grab her by the throat and take her pocketbook. Yep. Not fun. Don't no. ever want to hear Isn't that. Isn't that crazy? Yes. That's why I will never go to one of those things. But that is the claim. I would never pool. be able to go next to a light skinned human being ever again. No. And I would never go to a new building. <laughs> Excuse me. Hi, before I go in there, when was this building built? Yeah, oh, me. 2016? No, thank you. No, I'm good. I thank have to you say for... anything before 2000. Can you just bring it out here? Yeah. <laughs> I'll eat outside. Yeah. Thanks. No, that is crazy. That was a crazy one. Yeah. I'm glad they found him, though. I know. Do you think he did the first one? That was my question I've been waiting to ask. No. I don't either. No. I think the first one was either a one-night stand or someone she was, like, frequently visiting. Well, and, like, it's a hotel. It's not... It's not like a, a right. smaller establishment. Like it's a hotel. Right. There's gonna be some, and especially back then. Like there was no, like nowadays. I feel like a lot of the time, like you could people, go to a Motel Six now. Yeah. And, like, well, and I think like the motive, like the eagerness to kill was. It's not. A, I don't think it's as as fluent as it is back then. You think it was higher back? then? Yeah, because I mean nowadays there's there's so many different ways you can get caught. Yeah. So I think that does help prevent people from wanting to do stuff or their urges or whatever like back then there was no dna there was no phones there was no tracking there was no anything like it was all word to mouth it was all eyewitness it was all but like back then people had to be nosy i know nowadays i'm on my business back then everyone was like (laughs) you checked out when and at this time and at this time oh okay okay but you don't and it was one of our one of our listeners messaged me the other day and they were like Chase is so funny. He's like a mind my own business, but he's like also not. I'm like, no, he's not. He'll tell you he is. He'll never tell you he's snooping, 
but he's snooping. Yeah, but from a distance, I'll mind yeah. my business. Yeah, hundred. <laughs> yeah, like I will. I you'll will mind never your business, get, yeah, but you'll wonder what's going on. Yeah, but I'll never get into it. No, like I'll never be like, what's going on? I'm just chilling in the background. He's observing. Yeah, I just observe. Well, anyways, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And don't even you're the same way too. <laughs> okay. Because you'll be like, I'll be like, oh look, that guy got a new Bronco. Oh, I know. <laughs> and this person got a new car too downstairs. And um, this person walks their dog, and they have this type of dog. And I'm like, oh. It's because I work from home and I'm next to two windows and I get lonely throughout the day. I know you were, you're Hawkeye. I know everything that's happening at this apartment complex. Except what's upstairs. Oh, I know what's happening. I oh, watch yeah. her too. She's batshit crazy. She's batshit crazy. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I sure do. If you did, you can follow us on Instagram at Crime with a K. If you want to send, a K, send us a case, you can send it to Crime with a K at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on TikTok, you can follow her at Crime with a K. I have a funny video of Chase that just went viral. Is that on the Crime with a K one or your other one? Oh, that's on my hello.kelsey. Hello.kelsey. Hello.kelsey on TikTok. Yeah. You can see Chase. You got 78,000 views. But I don't have a TikTok, so don't no. try and follow me. Chase doesn't use his social media, so don't take it personal. I don't. I go on Twitter and watch sports stuff. He posts two posts a year, my birthday and our anniversary. That's basically, honestly. <laughs> Literally Or it. like a significant, like a <laughs> wedding or something maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because I don't care. I know. I know what I'm doing. Why do I why do I want to care what, I don't why would you care to see what I'm doing? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well other than that, we'll see you next week. Okay, bye. Bye.